was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedediah, daughter of Adai of Boscath. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to the high priest, Hilkiah, and have him add up the entire sum of the silver that has been brought into the house of the Lord that the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given into the hand of the workers who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workers who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, the builders, to the masons. And let them use it to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the silver that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. The high priest Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have melted down the silver that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workers who have oversight of the house, the house of the Lord. Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, the priest, Hilkiah, has given me a book. Shaphan then read it aloud to the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded the priest Tokiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and the king's servant Asa, saying, Go. Inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, great is your faithfulness to us. And even in the opening of your word, in the study of it, in the pursuit of, of you while reading it, Father, we ask for your blessing. We ask for your spirit, and we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through a series of messages on devotional practices. Last week we talked about prayer, we talked about prayer previously as well, and today we're talking about Bible study. And so this message this morning, we're going to dig a little bit into, into a little history in the book of Kings. But my personal journey with Bible study, I want to share a little bit about. And I think I've told you before, I was a canvasser, also known as a coal porter, also known as a door-to-door -door saleswoman in some sense. And I would go door-to-door -door, uh, selling Christian literature. And when I was 19 years old, he's all right, everyone, don't worry. <laughs> when I was 19 years old, 
I started having my own regular devotional time. Now, I was raised in the church, raised Seventh-day Adventist, but this was a little new. And a lot happened that summer. I was uh, going into my sophomore year um, in college at Michigan State University, and that summer, I was a coal porter. And so a bunch of college kids and a few high schoolers, we, we stayed in a small Adventist church, um, a church school for that summer. And all the girls slept in one classroom on the floor <laughs> with sleeping bags and couch cushions. No, it wasn't comfortable, but we managed. And every morning, the majority of the ladies that summer, and I'm sure the, other, the gentlemen as well, they would wake up about an hour, hour and a half before call time, before it was time to do chores or gather together, and they would take time to pray and study their Bible. So if you were to walk in the room um, around 6 a.m., 6.30, you'd find people huddled alone in different corners across the classroom or uh, under their sleeping bags praying, studying their Bible. Well, you'd find everyone except me. <laughs> I was still sleeping <laughs> because that was normal. That's what you do at 6 a.m., all right? And you got a long day ahead of you, you sleep, okay? But it wasn't long before I started to feel like the odd woman out. Morning prayer and Bible study, I guess, in this group of people seemed to be the norm. And I apparently didn't know that. So I didn't want to look, you know, unholy or anything. So one day, I humbled myself, and I, uh, I asked one of the girls, one of the older ladies, if she, if she would teach me how to have devotions. Because I had tried before, and, you know, I opened my Bible, and I kind of flip-flopped around, didn't really know what to do or what to read, and I'm like, this, is, this isn't fruitful. So I asked her, how do you do it? And so we got up early the next morning and we went out to one of the picnic tables on the playground and she showed me how she did her devotions. And so she took me on a word study, started in the New Testament, we looked at one verse and we jumped from passage to passage, seeking to understand just one verse. And it took the whole time. That summer, I learned that when it came to Bible study, I needed to be curious. I needed to ask questions. Now, that wasn't the beginning of my journey with God, but it was the catalyst for going deeper with him. And so the text of emphasis today came from the book of 2 Kings. And so we're going to dig a little uh, uh, into 2 Kings. We're going to talk a little history here and some, uh, talk about a lot of context to help us see the picture here at the end. Now, during the era of the kings of Israel and Judah, one could say that uh, what was desperately needed was a deeper and constant revelation of God. Okay? If you read the book of First and Second Kings, I mean, when it comes to a deeper revelation of God, this is applicable all the time, of course. But zooming in particularly to this era and time in Israel's history. 
So arguably, my opinion, uh, in my opinion, one of the most miserable books to read in the Bible is the book of First and Second Kings, arguably. Because the majority of the kings of Israel and Judah, and the Bible will say this and it re- will, re- will repeat itself over and over, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So it'll say, this king came to power, he rose, and then immediately it'll say, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then you go to the next one. Oh, maybe there's hope here. Nope. And he did evil <laughs> in the sight of the Lord, and so forth, and so on, every single king. And you're like, my goodness, any hope out there? <laughs> you're just all wicked, huh? Over and over and over, right? And they engaged in idol worship, right? Worshiping false gods of stone, of silver, worshiping the sun, worshiping the moon. Now, worship. Worship is ascribing value and devotion or honor to something or someone in a very reverential manner, right? I would describe it as treating something or someone with high regard, right? Because of who they are, because of um, what they've done or what they're capable of doing, okay? And one of the ideas with idolatry is that it causes individuals to miscredit God. By crediting other things or other beings with that which God has done or which God is only ascribed to do. Am I making sense? So, for example, say I go out to a forest and I uh, begin to worship the, the majesty of the forest, a, a particular tree, and I, and I ascribe the, the, the power uh, of creation to this tree. And I bow down before it, and I bring gifts, right? I'm giving devotion, my attention, my reverence to this tree, but that is a created thing, right? This is kind of the idea behind idolatry, misapplying who deserves what honor, right? Or what deserves what honor. Anyways, these idolatrous practices, and there are many of them and different strands of them, they caused a number of individuals uh, they cause them to do violent and obscene things, such as sacrificing uh, their children by fire as a gift offering to a god, or having public or private orgies in fields before altars to uh, summon the gods and a, a cry for rain, right? And when we look at it, we would consider it to be, in our eyes, very carnal, very barbaric, even animalistic at times. And this is significant because since the fall of King Solomon, King Solomon was the third king of Israel, all right? You had King Saul, you had King David, and then you had his son, King Solomon, all right? Giving you some background here. Since the fall of King Solomon, since the time that he began to gauge, engage in idol worship himself, Israel and Judah never recovered. So if you know anything about King Solomon, he was the great, one of the greatest kings of Israel. And he brought Israel to the heights of its glory. He was the wisest man that ever lived. And because of his wisdom, all of the nations around uh, Israel wanted to come and visit because they were like, how is this possible that this man is so wise, right? 
And so because of that, he, he succeeded in business. He, so they were very rich. They had a lot of gold, etc. But God warned him, if you take many wives, should you take many wives from other nations, they will lead your heart astray and you will, you will become idolatrous. And that's exactly what happened. And so once King Solomon started practicing idolatry, he set this trend for his kingdom and they never recovered. So even after he passed on, they were still idolatrous because he started the trend. So he introduced the nation to that. And ever since then, almost every king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And some of them would follow the course of the king that came prior to them, evil, but some went even further and did worse and continued. Now, it's like, what do you you mean by worse? I'll let you go back and read. Just go through and read the book of Kings. It'll tell you. And king after king did evil in the sight of the Lord. So when the kingdom of Israel split, okay, it became two nations, the kings of the northern kingdom Israel um, were all evil. There was not one good king in all of the northern nation of Israel, not one. So because of that and their lack of repentance, God allowed them to fall into captivity and they were scattered. There was no more northern kingdom of Israel. All we had left was the southern kingdom of Judah, which also had very, very horrible kings. (laughs) But there were enough good kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord to extend their existence as a kingdom. And so God would bear along with them because he saw that there was hope, right? One of the most horrid kings of Judah, his name was Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings. Now, You have to go back and definitely read about him. But he went an extra step and not only continued the false worship in the nation, but he set up false idols and false gods inside the temple of God. Now, if you know anything about the temple, it's a very sacred space. So sacred that God's presence would manifest himself We call it the Shekinah glory in the most holy place of the temple. God would dwell there. So Manasseh went as far as setting up images, structures, right there in the very face of God. So when people would come to worship the one true God, they would get sidetracked and they would end up worshiping false gods, giving them the credit for their existence seeking their blessing over their sustenance, asking for forgiveness for them, instead of Elohim, Yahweh, whose house they were in. In the most human sense, or if I could give, I could equate this to some type of offense in our human experience, it would be like coming home to your spouse who is sleeping with someone else in your own bed. That's the type of offense, if I could... I'm sure it's worse than that, but for the sake of understanding. So Manasseh, fortunately, ends up repenting on his deathbed. He has a son. His son reigns for two years. His son does evil in the sight of the Lord. His servants conspire against him, plot and kill him, and then they made his eight-year-old son reign instead. 
So now you have an eight-year-old kid as king. His name was Josiah. All right. Now stick with me. Now, the wild thing is that the Bible says Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So you've got this eight-year-old kid clearly being given some, some good guidance, but reigning and having a heart to follow God. And he did what was right. We don't give kids enough credit sometimes. Some of them <laughs> have good hearts. <laughs> God help us all. <laughs> now, something's about to take place, all right? Look at, look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, all right? Looking at verse 3 from our text of emphasis. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshalem, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to the high priest Hilkiah and have him count the entire sum of the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given into the hand of the workers who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workers who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, to the builders, to the masons, and let them use it to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the house. Jump to verse 8. The high priest, Hilkiah, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king, King Josiah, and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workers who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, the priest Hilkiah has given me a book. Shaphan then read it aloud to the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Let me paint this picture for you. King Josiah sends his secretary to the temple. He tells his secretary, have the high priest count all of the money and the offerings that have been collected uh, from the people. Have them counted up. And then he told him, take that money and give it to the men, the workers, to make repairs on the house of the Lord, right? Maybe the roof was damaged, right? Repair some of the pillars, etc. And in the process of the high priest going to count the money in the treasury, he stumbles upon the book of the law, the Torah. Hmm. I'm curious. Because when we come to study the Bible, come curious. I have a couple questions. How is it that the high priest of the temple of God was not aware that the book of the law was missing? The high priest? Hmm. I have more questions. What was being used to lead the people spiritually then at this time? What were they using? You know what this tells me? It tells me that spiritual leaders can be misguided. 
You know what else this tells me? They'd been operating off of the traditions of their fathers or their ancestors as their source of guidance. They were just doing what had always been done. They were just doing what they'd always been told was right. Doing what they grew up doing. They were operating off he say, she say. Oh, well, you know, Ellen White says eat this. Oh, well, you know, the Bible says this. Never read it yourself. Oh, you do this. Oh, you do that. Josiah, the good king, he had good intentions, yet he was misguided. And the irony is, is that he was in the process of making preparations to fix the outside of the Lord's house when he probably should have been cleansing within. You know why? Because remember, Manasseh set up those idols inside the temple of God and they remained there. When you follow tradition, when you follow the he say, she say of your faith, and you don't know it yourself, it is likely that you will end up with the wrong focus in your spirituality, in your religion, in your faith practice. When you follow solely tradition, it is likely that you will prioritize the wrong things. However, for Josiah, in the process of his attempt to genuinely honor the Lord by devoting attention to the Lord's house, the book of the law was found. I believe God honors our sincere efforts and desires. And so the book of the law is found. Look at verse 11 one more time. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Hmm. I'm curious. What made the king tear his clothes? Okay, yeah, it says the reading of the book of the law. Okay, all right, okay. More specifically, what exactly was read from the book of the law that made the king tear his clothes? What was, what was being read? You know what? Even simpler than that, what is the book of the law? The book of the law is not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is in the book of the law, but it's not the book of the law. The book of the law is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, or what we call our Old Testament, the first five books of our Old Testament. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, right? The first five books of Moses, also called the Pentateuch, right? Detailing the beginning of the world, the first patriarchs, and the journey of the Israelites living under this theocracy. A theocracy is where God was their direct ruler. So when the secretary began to read the book of the law, he probably started at the beginning, like this. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. 
And God said, and Elohim said, let there be light. And there was light. He heard how God had created the sun, the moon, the stars to give light to the earth, not to be worshipped. He heard Genesis 3.15, that there was coming one that would crush the head of the serpent and abolish sin and death, the promise of a savior. This is what he's listening to. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, by the time he got to Moses and the children of Israel, he had already heard the gospel many times. Many times. You're like, how? Where is that found? You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. God told Abraham, take your son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice him as a burnt offering. <gasps> so they go and Abraham raises his knife. Isaac willingly lays on the altar. Uh, Abraham raises his hand with the knife and just before he comes down, God says, no, wait, stop. Abraham, Abraham. No, 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 don't do that. Take a lamb instead. The reality that there was one coming that would do a work for humanity that they couldn't do or we couldn't do for ourselves. Let's keep digging, though. How was the gospel demonstrated, okay? Abraham and Isaac, right? There would be a lamb that would come on Isaac's behalf, on humanity's behalf, sent from God himself. But keep digging. The whole experience of the Exodus, the children of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, is a parallel to the journey of a child of God. And the Passover? The Passover is one of the most obvious illustrations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? How? The night of their escape from Egypt, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt uh, for over 400 years. And at the cap of that, it was time to be called out. And so the night of their escape, the children of Israel were instructed to eat unleavened bread with roasted lamb and bitter herbs. And they were to dress, ready to leave. It says, have their sandals laced on their feet and eat the Passover meal in a hurry. And they were to take a lamb for each household, or if you had a small household, you would combine. And at twilight, you'd slaughter the lamb, roast it. Then you'd take some of the blood and put it on the outside doorposts where you abide, over your dwelling. Because at night, the angel of death would pass over the land of Egypt and the firstborn of every human, every animal, on, and, and all the gods of Egypt, right, without the covering of the blood of that lamb, would die. In other words, if you were covered by the blood, you would be passed over. Are you hearing me? Is anyone picking this up? There is no other remedy that can keep the curse of death at bay, except the blood of the lamb. We must realize 
that the gospel spoken of in Exodus is the same gospel for today. It's the same. Sin and death enters every quarter, every household, every person. We're all plagued by it, every experience. Unless you're covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, there's no remedy. You can't save yourself. There's no self-help book. You can't just do better. You need the blood of the Lamb. And today, we think that our false gods, because we have false gods today, we may not be falling down in front of a tree, but we'll fall down before some money and some status, a little fame, Our, our personal righteousness of dressing holy, looking holy, cleaning up nice, that gets you no credit with God. No credit. There is no credit with God unless you're covered with the blood of the Lamb. We cannot save ourselves. We must believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and rest in that. No, Cain. We don't want your works from the field. That doesn't save you. You need a lamb. You need a lamb. So this, this was what was read in the hearing of King Josiah. And so he tore his clothes. Because when he looked and he evaluated the landscape and how far he was from the God of their deliverance, he tore his clothes. He looked at his land scattered with all the idols that couldn't save them, that hadn't delivered them from Egypt, like the golden calf, and they couldn't deliver them like the God of heaven could, and he tore his clothes. You know, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You lack faith, hear the word of God. Faith is an active belief. It's not only hearing or listening, but putting that which you believe into practice. The hearing of the book of the law, the hearing of the gospel, became the catalyst behind Josiah and the kingdom of Israel's transformed relationship with God. The hearing of the book of the law, the hearing of the gospel inspired change, growth. And so, because of Josiah's renewed revelation, he began to make changes in the kingdom and his life. And if you continue reading the story, I'll let you do that when you go home. Read chapter 23 and all the reforms that Josiah did. But the motive was not because it was right. But because the goodness of God leads us to repentance. God is the source of action. He was internally moved by God after the discovery of the works and character of the God of heaven. He repented, he asked for forgiveness, 
and he started over. So first, he comes to the people and he's like, look guys, we got to make some changes. And he reads the whole book of the law, what he just heard, to the people. So they recommit their lives. And then second, he cleans out the house of the Lord by removing the idols from the temple and then the land. And then third, they kept the Passover. Look at this. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 21. It says this. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 21. It says, The king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as prescribed in this book of the covenant. No such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, even during all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. For decades, the children of Israel had not been keeping the Passover. They were not living with the light of the gospel before them. King Josiah, in his attempt to serve the Lord and, and build up the Lord's house, stumbled upon the scriptures. And in my attempt at a summer to sell books, Christian literature, I stumbled upon the word of God. It became revolutionary in the time of Josiah, and it became revolutionary in my own personal experience. Maybe you know the story of the Protestant Reformation and how it started. Luther, he was plagued with guilt in his conscience. He was reading the scriptures in Latin, trying to translate them, and he came across the book of Romans. And he realized, I cannot atone for my own sins. It doesn't matter how many times I beat myself. It doesn't matter how many staircases I go up and down with. I, Jesus has to do it. There is grace. There is mercy. And as soon as he got the gospel, the Reformation happened. Darkness was removed. Why? Because he encountered the scriptures. He was following the traditions of his fathers, and then he read it for himself, and light came on. And light came on. Why? Because the sincere study of the scriptures is the catalyst for growth. God begins to inspire you with a desire for more more truth, more faith, more love, more joy, more understanding. And you come to understand who God is and what he desires for you. And I mean, for God to come down and die for human beings made of dust, says Genesis, that tells me my value is very high. My value is very high. For the God of the universe to think I'm worth coming down, I mean a lot to God. You mean a lot to God. My value went from here, it skyrocketed. 
The better you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more you'll understand yourself, the more you'll understand your neighbor, and the more you'll understand your purpose in the grand scheme of salvation. So what now? Right? We're talking about Bible study. John chapter 5, verse 39 says this. Jesus was speaking to some of the religious leaders. And the religious leaders believed that in the very act of studying the Bible, that that was their righteousness. That they would go to heaven because they studied the Bible. And this is what he says to them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify of me, or it is they that speak of me. Basically, we often come to the Bible looking for the wrong thing. He said, you're looking for eternal life. Wrong. Look for me. Look for me. Reading the Bible doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Reading or studying the Bible helps you get, a better, get better acquainted with the one saving you. It is through that acquaintance that you're changed. By beholding, you become changed. In John chapter 1 and 2, I'll give you another example. Jesus is, is, is introduced on the scene as the word, and he begins walking around. He starts his public ministry, and John the Baptist points to him, and he's like, there's the Lamb of God, and he directs some of the disciples to Jesus. And so Jesus is doing his thing. He's walking around, and the, some of the disciples start following him from afar. Creepy, weird, right? So Jesus turns around, and he's like, what seek ye? <laughs> what are you looking for? And they said, where do you stay? Where do you dwell, Jesus? We want to kick it with you. We want to know you. We want to spend time with you. Who are you? And they spent the next three and a half years spending every single waking moment following Jesus. Getting to know him. Come to the scriptures seeking a relationship with God. To know him, as the song says, and the power of his resurrection. Who is he? Why does he love me? Who am I to God? What, what would he be willing to give to be closely acquainted with me? You know. In the eyes of God, you're the cool kid. You're the cool kid. He wants to be with you. The Bible says you are the apple of his eye. You're the cool kid. God is looking to be acquainted with you. He sees value in you. I know we're all at different levels of, of Bible study, right, when it comes to that. But here is my plea, my pledge. Get familiar. That's level one. Just get familiar with Scripture. 
What does it stay, say? What are the stories in there? One story at a time, one chapter at a time, one verse at a time, whatever it is. You don't have time to read? Listen. Put it on audio Bible. And then ask yourself in your reading, in your listening, what did I discover about God? Did I discover anything about him? Did you discover something about other people or the human nature and how we act, how we operate? Did you discover something about yourself? Then take that revelation and pray about it. And do it over and over and over. And you'll see. Things will change. Things will change. Start this week. Start today. Start when you're ready. But start. Is that your desire? Is that your prayer? Then may God make it your experience.